Welcome to the Foot Anti Thinking Global podcast. In this podcast, we look at different jurisdictions and industries and explore the opportunities that exist in the global marketplace. My name is Lingxi Wang, and I'll be your host together with my colleague, Carl Bradford. Lingzi and I are members of the International Committee here at Fidanti, and we work on cross-border transactions that involve inbound and outbound investment with the UK. In this series, we are speaking with different subject matter experts on innovations occurring in the UK across various industries and their importance internationally. And in this episode specifically, we will be speaking with Mark Greyholder, who leads Fidanti's commercial energy practice, covering projects across a range of energy industries such as solar, wind, nuclear and green hydrogen. We'll be specifically honing in on the nuclear industry, the latest developments in this sector in the UK and its role in helping us to achieve global net zero emission targets. So welcome to the podcast, Mark. Hi, Carl. Hi, Lingzi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Uh, so firstly, nuclear power, I guess, you know, it's been around for decades. And as we search for sustainable energy solutions, should it be classified, should nuclear be classified as a clean energy source, you know, in the same breath as solar and wind? Well, Carl, I, th- I think it's probably just worth saying that nuclear energy isn't a renewable energy source as such, because the nuclear fuels used, such as uranium, are a finite material mined from the ground. But nuclear power stations only use a very small amount of fuel compared to coal or gas power stations, for example. So it is considered to be a reliable and long-term energy source. However, to answer your question, in an emissions sense, nuclear is considered to be clean. And by that, I mean it doesn't produce any carbon emissions or other noxious greenhouse gases through its operation. The lifestyle emissions, uh, that is the emissions arising from every stage of the production process, are, are also a lot lower than other forms of energy generation, whether that's fossil fuel based or from the likes of solar and wind. Thanks, Mark. You've, you've mentioned quite a few positives about nuclear there. There is, of course, I guess, historically being people that are against nuclear. Is that still a big concern for people? Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably fair to say there are always going to be some opponents to nuclear power, and it is quite an emotive form of energy. So there are a good number of people who oppose it, and those sort of concerns come from the fact that you know it produces radioactive waste and the possible threats to health risks and, and accidents and environmental damage that can be caused. Um, and obviously there's been some high profile disasters at nuclear power stations around the world. But equally, you know, there's a lot being done during the construction of nuclear power stations to try and minimize those risks. You know, safety is absolutely paramount and any impact on the environment is carefully managed to ensure that there's as minimal impacts as possible. I mean, it's it's a very specialist area, or it seems very specialist area. How did you get involved in that industry, in that whole sector? I've been involved in the nuclear industry for about seven or eight years now. So I'm based in our Bristol office, which is not far from Hinkley Point C in Somerset, which is the location of the first nuclear power station being built in the UK in a generation by EDF Energy. Um, When that project got started, Fertanstey were instructed by EDF to advise them on the project. And so I was fortunate to get involved on that that work with uh, first with Steve Ovenden, who's now head of legal for construction on the HPC project. Um, And a bit later with Ian Stubbs, who now leads our energy and infrastructure sector. And my involvement in the nuclear industry has grown from there, really. 
Um, as Carl obviously alluded, a lot of people are familiar with nuclear power. It's been around for a very long time. Obviously, one of the main concerns with the construction of more plants is actually how we're going to deal with the nuclear waste that's been generated. Um, are there any new solutions to this issue? Yeah, that's that's a great question, Lingzi. And, um, you know, nuclear has been a controversial uh, topic for many, many years now. So let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. Producing electricity from a nuclear reaction does result in small amounts of radioactive waste, and how that is handled is very important. Now, in most cases, this involves currently packaging the waste and storing it for long periods of time. But beyond storage, many other options have been considered for the final management of radioactive waste, which are safe and environmentally sound, but also which are acceptable to the public. And this has included things like launching it into space or burying it at the bottom of the ocean. Now, the most widely favoured long-term solution is what's known as deep geological disposal. And there's a strong international consensus on this being the best long-term solution. Essentially, this is disposal of waste hundreds of metres below the ground in stable geological formations. So the waste would be protected by both man-made and natural barriers. So the facility would be designed to securely lock away the waste, which would protect future generations against radiation hazard but also freeing them from the commitment to deal with it themselves. Now, the, the UK doesn't currently have one of these facilities, but it, it does hope to have one by 2050. So as you can imagine, there continues to be some opposition to these plans. So a key part of establishing such a facility is to find a community willing to host one. And in return, uh, they, they get benefits such as the creation of new jobs in the area. Although, as you've highlighted, there's this concern about waste. It does appear that the UK government is backing nuclear. You've talked about Hinkley Point C and things. So there's obviously a willingness at government level to to push forward with this energy solution. Yeah, that's right, Carl. I mean, just just to provide a little bit of context here, the UK currently generates about 15% of its electricity from nuclear, which is about six and a half gigawatts. But most of our existing capacity is due to be retired by the end of the decade. So the UK is really at a crossroads in terms of where it wants to go from here in terms of nuclear. As it stands, the government is very supportive of nuclear energy and has plans for up to 24 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity by 2050. So that's quite an increase and it would increase our reliance on nuclear to about 25% of the energy mix. I should also say that the Labour government is also very supportive of nuclear. Uh, as a solution to the UK's long-term energy needs. So it, it's probably fair to say that nuclear is here to stay. Um, and one of the main reasons for this is is that nuclear can deliver a reliable baseload of electricity to support the UK's energy demands. And then that can be supplemented by other forms of renewable energy like wind and solar. So it gives us a, a number of diverse and flexible options for the generation of our electricity. Okay, so it's an important part of the mix for the whole kind of grid, I guess, because it is the base. Whereas the age-old argument against solar and wind is that it you have to have the sun shining or the wind blowing. That's exactly right. And there's very, very few forms of other renewable energy that can give you that that consistency, that that reliable base load of electricity. And that's why nuclear as a, a form of clean energy is so so attractive. And and has the UK government then look to incentivize investments into the sector obviously i guess it supports the big projects like hinkley point but but is it putting incentivizations into the private sector yeah that's that's a really good question carl you know because if, if the government can't stimulate investment in the sector then its plans to grow our nuclear capacity just simply won't happen 
But the government has and is, is trying to do a number of things. So in March earlier this year, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, announced that nuclear energy would be classified as environmentally sustainable in the UK's green taxonomy. So that will give it access to the same investment incentives as other forms of renewable energy. And that mirrors a similar move that was made within the EU last year. A new government body, Great British Nuclear, has also been set up. And that's designed to help co-fund selected technologies such as small modular reactors. It's passed new legislation to allow for a regulated asset-based model to be used to help finance future energy projects, nuclear projects specifically. This essentially requires consumers to start paying indirectly towards the cost of a nuclear power project during its construction phase by way of a small amount on their electricity bills. And this is quite different from how Hinkley Point C was financed under the Contracts for Different scheme, where developers had to finance the whole construction of the project themselves and only start generating an income once the power station is operational. That means there's, there's quite a bit of risk that the developer and investors are, are taking. And finally, I suppose we've seen quite a lot of direct investment by the government into projects like Sizewell C and the Rolls-Royce SMR project, all with the aim of trying to encourage further private sector investment into these, these projects. So obviously, it's a big capital cost and some very long build times. You mentioned Hinkley Point C, which the costs are, are quite large and it is obviously been building for a long time. Is, is there any way that you know, the government can try and bring those kind of costs out? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think we're already seeing that in terms of the proposal on, on Sizewell C. They're looking there at adopting what they're calling an, an intelligent replication model. So the idea being that all of the hard work has gone into building Hinkley Point C, which is the the first nuclear power station being built in, in a generation in the UK, as I said, and adopting that design as it is. So I think, you know, 90, 95% of the design and the blueprint for HPC is going to be adopted for Sizewell C. So naturally, when you do something, you know, a second time, you do it a lot quicker. You can do it for less money. You've got a, a skilled supply chain who have already been there and done it and can translate their skills onto the new project. So I think all of that naturally means that once you've got that first one done, the second, third and fourth that follow will be a lot more efficient to build them. So I, I think that will happen naturally. But yeah, the, the intelligent replication model is definitely going to help bring those costs down, reduce delays, and ultimately make it a lot easier to drive investment in these projects going forward. Yes, I guess those those kind of changes will make it much more investable for private investors that would otherwise be put off by such large costs and risks and not seeing the returns for some time. Yeah, that's that's definitely the hope, at least anyway. You mentioned SMR there. By that, you mean small modular reactors. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Small modular reactors. They're, they're essentially a smaller version of a conventional nuclear power station. Okay, I've, I've heard, of, heard of this concept before. I, I guess the likes of Rolls-Royce have been putting those kind of reactors into, for example, submarines, I think, for quite some time. So there's obviously quite a lot of expertise there. I, I guess that role that it could play in the nuclear industry could, could be quite big. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. I mean, un unlike larger traditional nuclear power stations, SMRs are typically manufactured off-site in a controlled factory setting, and then they're delivered to location for final assembly. So what this means in practice is that there's a lot less on-site construction, and the SMR can be built in a much shorter time. The factory setting also improves quality and removes that sort of climate risk during assembly, and that's often a big reason for construction delays. 
And, and then finally, they can be deployed at a much wider variety of sites than conventional nuclear plants. So, for example, they are well suited to off-grid applications such as providing power to remote communities or or other energy intensive industries. So you can see it's easy to see why so many people support the development of SMRs and why from a financing perspective investors and lenders might have a greater degree of confidence in an SMR project than than perhaps a, a larger conventional power station. Thanks Mark for sharing all the insights about investing in the nuclear industry and obviously the SMR projects all sounds like a, a very exciting new endeavor. I gather that development of um, large-scale power plants and obviously nuclear technology is an international endeavor and um, will involve people from you know, around the world to um, be participating in this. Is that the case with SMR development as well? Yeah, I think I think that's right, Lingzi. I mean, nuclear does require a very specialist supply chain and the UK doesn't currently have the capability or the capacity to self-deliver a, a new nuclear build power station. So it does need to look globally to the market to source certain plant equipment and skilled workforce. And this can obviously lead to supply chain issues and greater volatility and and longer lead time. So it does mean that global events are more impactful on one of those projects than they might otherwise be. Uh, But but in contrast, in in the case of SMRs, it's actually thought that the UK supply chain could deliver up to 80% of the required components. So, So SMR projects could be influenced a lot less by that global market. Right, yeah, it sounds like SMRs potentially are going to be uh, uh, the future and will certainly play a, a key role in the energy transition. But as this podcast is looking at the global marketplace, and I guess we've already touched upon the international nature of nuclear power and nuclear energy, drilling down into kind of the, the global aspects, like what role does nuclear power play in energy transition in, say, European countries? Have they taken the same view as the UK government as the, you know, this is a kind of a base energy going forward? Well, I think the approach across Europe differs quite a bit, both in terms of their support for nuclear in general, but also in terms of how much nuclear makes up in each country's energy mix. So just just to provide a bit of context here, I think there's about 100 nuclear power reactors in the EU operating out of 13 of the 27 member states. And that accounts for roughly 25% of the electricity generated in the whole of the EU. And half of that, in fact, is produced by one country, which is France. So I I think there's one camp which firmly supports nuclear energy and sees it as a key part of the solution to reach net zero. Uh, France is obviously a well-known supporter of nuclear energy, and that makes up 70% of its overall energy mix. In fact, earlier this year, ministers from 11 of the EU member states, so that included France, but, but also the likes of Finland, Romania, Bulgaria, and Croatia, met to jointly reaffirm their desire to strengthen cooperation between themselves in relation to nuclear energy. And to give you an idea what some of those countries are doing, Romania has doubled its production in the last 15 years. Hungary and the Czech Republic have increased theirs by about a fifth. Sweden's drafting a new law to allow it to build more, and France is looking at building at least another six by 2035. But, you know, other parts of the EU are very much um, less supportive of nuclear. So there's countries like Germany who argue that the costs are too high, the risks are unmanageable. So Germany's now actually phased out all of its nuclear power together and and others are either planning to do so or or have already done so themselves. So, you know, again, to give you some examples, I think Italy shut all of its power plants in 1990 and in 2011, 94% of the voters rejected a government plan to reintroduce it. And Spain are also looking to phase out their five active plants by, by 2035. So the divide across the block is quite stark. But I suppose 
the divide in the debate's not new. It's nothing new. It's it's just becoming increasingly intense because a lot of the existing nuclear reactors in the EU are nearing the end of their lifespan. So so if we are going to cut net greenhouse gas emissions in the coming years, a, a solution does need to be found. But I, I think it is fair to say that the sector does face some major challenges within the EU. Yeah, no, that does certainly sound like a, a big divide, possibly maybe even a geographical divide across North and South, those countries maybe who benefit more from uh, potentially having a renewable energy base uh, versus those uh, who might not be able to enjoy that natural advantage. Would you say that obviously a country's mood, whether it's attractiveness to, to using nuclear energy as a potential, I guess, base energy mix will depend on possibly where it's located, where the population lives, or even its um, existing renewable energy mixes? Or do you think those are all factors in whether nuclear is, is an attractive alternative? I think that there's a number of reasons why a certain country takes a certain stance on nuclear energy. You know, every country has its own identity and its own culture. So the mood of the nation can be influenced by any number of things, including you know, what they read in the media, what they, you know, are educated to believe. All countries have their own climate. So you've got the likes of the UK and Finland, where the sun perhaps doesn't shine as much, where perhaps we look to nuclear as a more favourable option because we can't rely on the sun to the same extent that other countries like Spain and Italy might be able to. You know, and in those countries where solar might be a lot more reliable than it is here, perhaps that influences them looking at other other forms of energy that aren't nuclear. So the geographical location of different countries, the climate, the culture, there's many different factors that can influence the stance that that a country, an individual country takes in relation to nuclear. And I I don't think it's any one thing. There's some diverse views on nuclear um, across the block. We we are going to have to wrap up this podcast soon. And it's one question we like to ask all the guests in this series. So what would you, Mark, like to see in the next few years in this sector? I mean, are there any particularly interesting areas that you're particularly excited about you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, I think the opportunities in the nuclear sector over the next few years are really exciting. And there's lots of things I would like to see, and I'll be watching very closely to see how they develop. It will be exciting to see the nuclear project at Hinkley Point C continue to progress and get ever closer to being operational. It'll be a great milestone once that that does become operational in, in the coming years. Uh, hopefully it won't be too much longer before the government makes a final investment decision on the Sizewell C project as well. We've obviously talked about SMRs and the role that they might play in the generation of electricity. So again, it'll be interesting to see how those might develop in the coming years. And um, I suppose there's also been quite a lot of noise around nuclear fusion as a way of generating electricity. So that that's actually a different process from the nuclear fission reaction used in traditional nuclear power stations and SMRs. But unfortunately, at the moment, it can't be achieved on any commercial scale. So, you know, perhaps we will see a breakthrough in this area too. But what is certain is that there's there's a lot to be excited about and it will be really interesting to watch. So I'm looking forward to being a part of the nuclear sector over the coming years. Well, it does seem to be a lot of um, interesting developments in the sector, both in the UK and, and in other jurisdictions. So uh, one to very much look out for. Unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap up there. So thank you very much, Mark, for joining us. Yes, thank you, Mark, for joining us on this podcast and obviously sharing with us your um, very insightful knowledge about the uh, nuclear industry, potential for investments, and obviously the opportunities that lie ahead in the UK, looking at the European Union. There is obviously a stark divide uh, there, looking at the future of nuclear energy. 
we will look forward to inviting you back on a future episode to uh, discuss um, new developments in this sector, potentially maybe when Hinkley Point C is uh, operational and we can then start talking about the uh, future investments of Sizewell C as well. For any listeners, if you have any questions on today's episode or like to discuss further, please leave your comments in the comment section below or send either Carl or myself an email. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, goodbye.